Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm your host in Montreal, Stefan Christoph. This is this is the 151st edition of the show. On the broadcast today, I'm going to be featuring an initiative called Reverberation d'une crise de logement à Montréal. So this is called Reverberations of a Housing Crisis in Montreal. This is a project that brought together a bunch of sound artists in the city to explore the impacts of the housing crisis on the arts, on the city in general, and on communities already struggling with precarity and economic injustice and systemic racism. It was an initiative that is attempting to express through the arts, through audio, media, the landscapes of the ways that gentrification and the housing crisis is impacting people's lives. Of course, this is a reality that affects Montreal, but also has an impact across the world. So on this edition of the podcast, as part of the project Reverberation d'une crise de logement à Montréal, I'm going to feature a podcast that's called Local Crisis, Global Crisis. Crise locale, crise globale. So here is the uh, work, and thank you for tuning in. Reverberation d'une crise. Sounding the housing crisis. Block is a personal story about standing up to your landlord, fighting for your home, and knowing your tenant rights. I moved back into the apartment on Q Block, where my daughter was born, in October of 2020. Her mom had found a spot in a co-op, and the plan was that I move back in, and after a legal period of at least six months of quote-unquote living together, we would present the landlord with a notice of cessation de cohabitation, cessation of cohabitation. Was the plan legal? Definitely. Was it manipulative? A little bit. But what tactics don't sway towards the side of the defender? That was the beginning of a long and arduous legal battle to keep the apartment where I still live with my daughter and am still fighting for today. A battle that never feels totally won because of the precariousness of rental economics. Every year, come springtime, I ask myself, what's he gonna try this time around? A notice of cessation of cohabitation states, the married or civil union spouse of a lessee, or a person who has been living with the lessee for at least six months, being the de facto spouse of the lessee, a relative or a person connected to the lessee by marriage or a civil union, is entitled to maintain occupancy and becomes the lessee if they continues to occupy the dwelling after the cessation of cohabitation and give notice to that effect to the lesser within two months after the cessation of cohabitation. A person living with the lessee at the time of the lessee's death has the same right and becomes the lessee if they continue to occupy the dwelling and give notice to that effect to the lesser within two months after the death. 
However, if the person does not avail themselves of this right, the lessee's liquidator or, if there is no liquidator, an heir of the lessee may, in the month that follows the expiry of the two-month period, terminate the lease by giving notice of one month to that effect to the lesser. The plan was pretty straightforward. We would cohabitate together for six months, meaning the lessee, my daughter's mom, keeps access to the apartment, then after six months, we send the notice to the landlord that she will be leaving and I will maintain the lease. What we didn't expect was that that spring, right around the six-month mark, we received a letter from the landlord. Montréal, le 15 avril 2021. J'ai constaté que vous n'habitez plus le logement au... Une autre personne occupe les lieux, sans mon approbation. Votre tentative de nouvelle de bail pour ensuite loger une autre personne est frauduleuse. Je ne vous permets pas de contrôler ma propriété. J'ai l'intention de demander au tribunal administratif du logement la résiliation du bail, l'éviction de l'occupant ainsi qu'un dédommagement punitif. Agissez en conséquence. Shortly after, we received a notice for a hearing to defend against imminent eviction. The plan had failed. And now I was faced with the hard truth that perhaps I would have to leave that apartment and find a new home for my daughter and I. I've been living in Montreal since 2004. Back then I was living in a three and a half for about $4.50 a month. I never really had any trouble finding affordable housing until about 2015 when we split up. I woke up to what people had been describing as a housing crisis in Montreal. That somehow in a period of 10 years, rental prices had not only tripled, but people were lining blocks to visit vacant apartments, ready and willing to pay several months up front, and even offer more than asking price. It was outrageous. I got lucky in 2015. My cousin and his family were leaving their Villeray apartment, and we did a lease transfer right before the building had been sold. When the new landlord took possession, he told me straight up, I'll give you a few years because he has every intention of renovating the apartment and flipping it. We were on good terms for the most part, but I knew it was just a question of time. Knowing I couldn't afford to move to a new place when we received the official date for the hearing, I began to look for resources and legal aid, research the landlord and his history with other tenants. Turned out he had tried to evict the upstairs neighbors just a year before claiming he was going to leave his single-family home and move into the second floor of this triplex with his wife and rent the house to his newly married son. The tribunal ruled the following. Le locateur doit démontrer qu'il entend réellement reprendre le logement pour les motifs allégués. Cependant, l'ensemble de la preuve soumise, testimoniale et documentaire, ne convainc pas le tribunal de l'intention réelle du locateur de reprendre le logement concerné pour s'y loger. Le témoignage du locateur est évasif et principalement basé sur son insatisfaction de l'utilisation par le locataire et de l'état du logement. 
le tribunal se doit d'être vigilant dans l'analyse de la demande de reprise de logement, car le droit au maintien dans les lieux du locataire est en jeu. De l'avis du tribunal, la preuve révèle plutôt un prétexte pour atteindre d'autres fins. Par conséquent, le locateur n'ayant pas rempli son fardeau de preuve, le tribunal n'autorisera pas la reprise du logement concerné. Quant à l'indemnité, celle-ci devient sans objet vu le refus du tribunal d'accorder la reprise. Pour ces motifs, le tribunal rejette la demande du locateur qui en assume les frais. Gathering materials to defend against eviction had me feeling as though I had done something wrong. As if I had to prove my worthiness of living in that apartment. I now realize it has nothing to do with someone's worth, but simply worth in general. It's economics. The landlord wanted to make more money, and I don't blame him. Who doesn't want to make an extra buck? I was there for the same reasons, wanting to save money by not moving out. But at what cost does making an extra buck come to the families who are being evicted? I'm asking the landlords out there who have kicked people out under false pretexts and lies in order to make an extra buck. This landlord was not prepared for the defense we were assembling. So in the summer of 2021, we defended ourselves against eviction and won. Within a month, the landlord appealed and he lost again. A couple months after that, we finally sent the notice of cessation of cohabitation and he refused it. So I took him to court and won. The lease is now in my name, but I'm still today waiting for a court date because I refused his outrageous attempt to increase the rent the day he received the verdict of losing once again. So the story continues. So I ask myself, what's the worth of telling this story? And I've come to realize that my story is just another story in this thing we're calling a housing crisis. Maybe it's misleading to simply call it a housing crisis. Is this crisis really just about housing? Sure, housing is central to the sense of comfort and place of belonging, a place to call home. But there's a larger, much more endemic crisis at hand. And housing is just at the tip of the iceberg. Wherever there's displacement, there's erasure. So I hope by telling my story, which at the time of telling is a positive one, it will encourage listeners to find resources to fight for their homes because there are some, but also to consider how this housing crisis, whether here or any other city, fits into a, a global crisis we're all a part of.
my name is Sonia Karamatali. I work with Action Committee of Park Extension since 2015. And uh, it's, a, it's a basically it's the principal mandate of our organization. This group was formed back in 1986 when, you know, like some like-minded people, some kind of uh, people who were really, who had a kind of a passion or the concern for the neighborhood. They came together to address the poverty of the, of the neighborhood and then and basically to address and to better, you know, like uh, contribute and facilitate the development project in the neighborhood. So it was formed in November 1986. Mm. And since then, uh, the committee got more engaged in defending tenants' rights. And uh, we are doing it uh, till to date, yeah. When people think about major cities in Canada, they would know clearly now today that Toronto and Vancouver are so expensive and when thinking about the reality in Montreal there is a number of neighborhoods that are really facing a lot of violence when it comes to real estate capital and investments and this monster in a lot of ways. There is some regulation in Quebec uh, but still many developers are finding shortcuts and schemes to pass through these regulations. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is when we talk about how Park X is changing today and you talked about the origins of CAPE as being a committee founded to defend the neighborhood and sort of take into consideration the interests of people in the neighborhood. When we think about Park X today and gentrification and the changes, how from your experience doing frontline work and discussions with families, a lot of families who are facing the reality of rising rents, how, how is this affecting these families? Um, because we hear politicians talking about gentrification a lot, but not often people really affected, especially when there's linguistic barriers. Well, uh, first of all, I would say that, of course, you know, like uh, many first world cities, uh, Montreal is also facing this, you know, the issue of gentrification. And, uh, and of course, we are, we are facing, you know, we are feeling the, this uh, impact of gentrification in the, in, in the neighborhood of Park Extension as well. Because, you know, the, the, the point is that the, the neighborhood from the surrounding neighborhood of Park Extension, they are also, uh, though host, uh, historically we are, you know, we are the neighbor of the TMR, the, the most uh, richest uh, neighborhood in Quebec in the municipality yeah we are you know we were anyways we were at the border of two very expensive municipalities of Utrumo and the TMR and then in the same time what actually happened in you know like in Myland and you know and, and Villery especially with the arrival of Ubisoft in my in Myland so uh, of course you know like uh, and given that you know the neighbor uh, the park extension is quite well connected through the transport uh, public transport the public transit so we we could see that you know like some developers they were very quick to uh, you know to identify the block as a potential but in the same time i would say it's it's a bit complex it's not just the developer who are you know like uh, contributing in the gentrification of the neighborhood the first of all it was you know like the the worst uh, impact was because of the con this construction of the campus mill 
which I would say that it's, you know, like a building a university campus just at the border of a working class neighborhood was a, such a kind of a blunder and a kind of a failed, you know, like a policy of a, a urban uh, urbanism. So uh, it was not, you know, like the human aspect was not considered. We mm. could see, in special, since the, you know, like the idea was floated starting 2011, there was a, such a great mobilization and there was a public consul consultation and it's, it's, it's a bit pity, you know, it feels so disappointing and tiring as well. People have put, you know, lots of efforts to, to tell them, you know, that, you know, like the, the consequences and at the end of the day in this uh, this uh, uh, plan of Pedeus, uh, they had promised that at least they will, you know, like there will be 225 social housing units. You know, it was With a the, promise. The University of Montreal uh, student housing and the whole construction? Uh, no, uh, like apart from, you know, okay. this campus mill, okay. there, there, there was a promise that there would be a construction of 225 social housing units okay. in Park X. And from uh, the Quebec government? Uh, from uh, sorry, but it was in the Pedeus plan. The the borough was the uh, very much as a okay, partner, and you yeah. know, like so. Um, uh, and of course, money had to come from the provincial assembly, from the Quebec government. But what actually happened that you know, after a while, this promise was broken, and they they never basically the site which was identified first as a potential site for the social housing. It, it went in the you know to uh, to the private developer because we know we are in a world where individuals are richer than the governments. So the, this the city had excused that you know this site is so expensive. First, it was only just the price of the uh, land. Then it says that it, it needs to you know the con decontamination cost was so high. So. At the end of the day, city was not able to f uh, buy this, uh, you know, land. But uh, this project, uh, Group Moltoni, they were, they had, the, you know, enough resources. And now, when we go there, we can see that, you know, this uh, high-rise uh, condos in the neighborhood, they have already, you know, like, uh, and uh, this, uh, they contributed, you know, like the the increase rent. Uh, tendency in the neighborhood so you know like the private developers and then this uh, uh, construction of campus mill that that was one factor but in the same time it's you know it's the current owner it's the, it's the local owner also who are basically taking advantage of the absence of rent control mm. so it you know like not right now if we see that the biggest issue which has you know like a more visible in in the neighborhood is like a, a abusive rent increase and evictions wow. okay so and at the end of the day when we see why is happening what the you know what the working class families have been facing and you know like feeling in terms of abusive rent increase and evictions and this you know this instability or in, in uh, this helplessness in front of in this situation and especially this you know like a kind of a very perpetual precarity in you know uh, housing precarity sure. so it's 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 more you know like uh, we we see that it's the same owner which is which are, who are basically taking advantage of you know like this uh, all these weaknesses in the system so the government promised social housing units mm -hmm. it didn't happen the land was given to private developers a lot of local groups were opposing including CAPE, the construction of the university campus. So then there's the local owners. And I think often people might get confused around this issue. You know, they think, 
oh, well, you know, it's a family that owns a building and, you know, it can't be, um, you know, as bad as a big company, for example. But in ParkX, we're seeing uh, this many cases from what I, I've heard, you know, and you're working directly with these families or renters experiencing this, where because of all these bigger situations, like the development of the campus, the high-rise towers, local owners are saying, oh, well, I can boost the rent three times as much. And, mm -hmm. but for like a family, this is maybe impossible in many situations. Well, of course, you know, like we see that in the neighborhood, there are still, you know, like the families, the poor families who are either on welfare or even if they work, so that is another thing that, you know, like giving, you know, that the current minimum wage, we, we know that it's not a living decent wage. Mm -hmm. So, and it, that is another injustice to them that these, you know, like working class families, these, these workers, they are, they are really, you know, like giving their energy, their labor, to the you know to the factories and the, but in the same time you know the uh, we know the statistics tell us that they are they work but they are working poor because with, uh, the minimum wage they are earning it's not enough yes. so and so it, it shows that you know like nothing has been changed in terms of their financial situation but the rent prices have already got doubled you know I would say so, and it's it's crazy. So, and in the same time, most of the time, these they are immigrants' families. They don't even know their rights around their, you know, like uh, regarding their rights uh, and uh, obligations. So, and of course, you know, the way these arrogant and ignorant owners, the, the way they, they intimidate them, the, the way they treat them, you know. So, uh, uh, most of the time, they, they think that, okay, if the landlord is saying something, we have to, you know, like, uh, respect because it's his property. But and what is the, you know, for me, the, the most disappointing thing is that in Canada, at least we know that, you know, like, the tenants' rights are above ownership's rights, you know, but uh, because of mm. this uh, lack of awareness and, abs mm. you know, absence of mm. the information, sometimes, you know, like uh, tenants, they don't even contest what their demands. Sometimes they don't even, you know, owner doesn't even take pain to, to send re real formal notices, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, they, even there, you know, they, the tenants, poor tenants, they take their verbal commands and their verbal demands so seriously. Mm -hmm. And if they, if they mm -hmm. leave, leave the place at first, place of course here we can't do much but in the same time we know that all these evictions notices they are uh, they can contest them and you know even if they use the proper model it brings you know the entire information together but, but mm -hmm. it's in English or in French and nor most of the time owner they are so ignorant that they don't even want to send the proper notices neither